This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. How's your dental situation? Not so bad. Have you received any opiate-based painkillers? Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I am Matthew Glacius, uh, joined uh, in the studio by my colleagues Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Uh, Bands back together. Hey, y'all. Hey, it's great. It was nice of you guys to do do the video show with uh, Barack. Um, it's pretty good. Barack. I, would, I was thinking of... It's a bit of a microphone hog, though. I don't know. He really, he really took he a lot of time. He rambled a lot. Um, I think we should consider renaming the show uh, Wonka Palooza. Sure, um, we are. If you good. don't, if you don't know, we are talking about last week's interview with President Obama, uh, sitting in for Matt. Yes. <laughs> um, so we we want to talk about that that interview and the the larger context around the Affordable Care Act uh, that, that you guys were talking about. But first, I thought it would be good to touch on the uh, confirmation hearings for Trump's cabinet, uh, which are getting underway this morning. Uh, well, not as underway as we thought. No, but Jeff Sessions is kicking it off uh, pretty much in parallel with, with as uh, as we are recording. Uh, John Kelly, the um, general who has been appointed to uh, Department of Homeland Security and who does not seem controversial, is coming this afternoon. Uh, it was supposed to be that tomorrow we were going to have um, – Rex Tillerson at State, Mike Pompeo at CIA, uh, and Betsy DeVos at Education all at the same time, which was also going to be the same time as Donald Trump's first press conference in a million months. It, I would say it strongly suggested that Senate Republicans wanted nobody to see the hearings. Um, they've now changed their mind a little bit. And, and Pompeo has been pushed to Thursday and DeVos has been pushed a full week. Uh, so now the only conflict, I guess, is is Tillerson and Trump himself, uh, which I think may actually be a really dumb idea because they may well give contradictory answers on contested foreign policy questions uh, without the ability to coordinate. But um, – it is what it is. Um, strikingly, the, the nominees have not completed their like ethics paperwork. Yeah, this is the important meta controversy here um, that, that I think might have something to do with some of these things getting pushed off. Yes, it's possible. Um, so, you know, in 2009, uh, Mitch McConnell had these like demands, requests, something like that um, was, you know, Basically, like everybody has to do all their financial disclosures. Uh, it was a sort of initial blow in the like, no more Mr. Nice Senate minority leader. You know what I mean? Was just saying like, you've got to do all this exacting stuff because we are going to be looking at everyone in a very skeptical kind of light. And so they did it. They caught a problem with Tim Geithner's taxes. Uh, Obama really wanted to put Geithner in. Geithner was not that controversial on the substance. Uh, so he was put through. But then when a similar problem showed up with Tom Daschle's also, taxes. Yeah, with his HHS nomination. Yeah, for, that was for the HHS, end of that. he was like, oh, it was too much. And Obama didn't want to have like a team of tax cheats. So they withdrew Daschle under fire. Doesn't it all seem so quaint? It certainly does seem <laughs> right. It was an issue with his nanny's payments, right? Like that was or the Dashiell issue. And D- Dashiell's issue, which I will say, 
it was a small issue, like in the scheme of things, but it was a really politically bad issue. Yeah. Yes. Was that right. Daschle yes. left the Senate, then went to go work as like a lobbyist, but also he was a senior fellow at Center for American Progress and also had some business partnerships. And one of his business partners gave him the use of a company car. And Daschle didn't report the company car as income. So the, the actual amount of like dollars involved in this was relatively small time. But it's like the ex-senators talking about how his maybe sleazy business partnership gave him a chauffeur. Yeah, it just seems quaint in the context of <laughs> Donald Trump didn't pay taxes for who knows how long and then also has not released his tax return. So we have no idea what's going well, on. Well, and like <laughs> Betsy DeVos, right? So the education secretary nominee has like a multi-million dollar outstanding FEC fine that she hasn't settled. Um, now, I'm sure that she will pay it. But like the dollar amounts involved in this, like she is a billionaire. It's all just so much bigger than anything Tom Daschle ever could have So done. let me add one piece of context here that I, I think has not been getting enough attention because it really helps explain, though, what, what is going on. In 2009, when Mitch McConnell sent that letter, which is, by the way, not at the very beginning. It was after they had already cleared a bunch of cabinet nominees. But he sent that letter. Democrats had 58 or 59 senators. I don't remember if Franken had been seated. Republicans were a very, very small minority. But they could filibuster a, confer- a, a cabinet nominee. All they needed was 40. In 2013, Democrats made a a, a series of filibuster changes that I am actually supportive of. But one of the things those changes did, and in part as a response to how grinding and grueling this nomination process had become, where any tiny tax thing and you had to give in a million forms, and a lot of it was just being used as a pretext to give the minority party an excuse to filibuster a nominee down. Democrats changed the filibuster rules so that you could no longer filibuster cabinet nominees. So now Chuck Schumer is throwing Mitch McConnell's words right back at him, and it's a good political hit. What he does not have, though, is the power McConnell had to make those words stick. Democrats have more senators than Republicans did in 2009, but they cannot filibuster these nominees. So really, if Republicans are able to stay united, they they can do what they want here. And, And so you are seeing something where Yes, Democrats agreed, but they sort of had to. The interesting question is, will Mitch McConnell fold on this given that he does not actually have to? I think it's, that's an important piece of context for the hearings overall mm-hmm. because when Obama put people up in 2009, right, Republicans were in this tenuous position though, where it was like they could filibuster and kill anybody, but the government was not going to work you know, with nobody in any kind of cabinet positions. And also, Obama had just won a, like, really resounding victory. There were a whole bunch of Republican senators from states that Obama had carried. And the question was, like, on everyone was, like, can Republicans kill this nomination, right? And then the political context kept evolving over time. Republicans gained more seats. Obama's popularity declined. The government was like less objectively understaffed. And so there were frequently questions like, can this guy get through? Can Republicans block him? And so I see people sort of carrying that thinking over when they're like, who are Democrats going to target? Like, Mm -hmm. can they block? But the answer is they can't block anybody, right? Like, If Republicans want to confirm 
Ben Carson to be HUD secretary, even though clearly he's an unsuitable choice, he will be confirmed, right? If Donald Trump wants to appoint his horse to be secretary of state, (laughs) Democrats cannot stop him. They cannot and will not stop anybody. Now, Republicans, just a tiny number of them, could stop anyone. Because Democrats would gladly join with Republicans Mm -hmm. to block any pick. But it's entirely a question of what do Republicans want to do. Whereas Democrats are not – in a way, it's a a relief because Chuck Schumer doesn't need to look at these picks and then look at his caucus and then be like, well, what line can I really ask Joe Donnelly to hold, right? Who is Heidi Heitkamp really going to stick with me and block? Because it doesn't matter. Right. If these Trump nominees get zero Democratic votes or they get 15 Democratic votes, it's completely irrelevant. They're going through one way or another. And so it's just purely like a, a messaging task. Right. Like what do the liberals and the party leadership, what do they want to say? Because they're not doing anything. It's it's much more like a parliamentary minority, mm-hmm. right? Who's You're there. You're like on camera. There's an official opposition. People are like, what does Chuck Schumer think about Steve Mnuchin? But, but it it doesn't matter in the way that it did when, when Obama well, I think it can, it can matter in non-procedural ways. I think you're giving Democrats a little less space to do things. And I think like we saw that with the ethics stuff that happened a week ago, right? That there is space to act. And there are – like I agree definitely the powers are limited. And procedurally, there is nothing – they can do to stop these confirmations that the votes are there with Republicans. But I was surprised to see how quickly that turned. We talked about it last week on The Weeds. And I think it does show a space where they can be active and can be affecting some kind of change. I guess I think you're seeing a little bit of that in the Affordable Care Act. I don't know how far far those powers go. I we you know this is a little bit different where Democrats like that is their only avenue. It is not as powerful as being able to filibuster, but it is it is something they they can be doing. It is something that is like part of the conversation. And I don't know how far it can go, but it, it's worked at least once this year so far. So I would not be totally shocked to see those sort of things like working again as we get through the confirmation process. If, you know, like you're saying, like Democrats, like they pick their person they want to target. They say like this is like public enemy number one, like throw all their effort at them. I, I don't know. I don't know what that looks like, but I don't think it's it's definitely nothing. Yeah, I, I agree with that, actually. Strategically, it puts Democrats, though, in a, in a different kind of choice set than they, than they used to have, which is if they want to stop a nominee, what they need to do is make the nominee unacceptable to a couple of Republican senators, right? So if they want to stop Rex Tillerson, for instance, the way they're going to do that is not unspooling Tillerson and Exxon's record funding climate denialism uh, around the world, it will be that they have to figure out a way to further the wedge between Tillerson and Lindsey Graham and John McCain on Russia and Ukraine. Um, But the other thing, they may not practically care about stopping. They may just want to be wounding, right? They may want to be using this to make Donald Trump look bad, make his cabinet secretaries look bad, and creating a baseline on which they can do sort of future uh, fu- future work and political work. But I actually want to use this as an opportunity to, to ask a question, which is knowing what we know now, knowing where we are now, how do people, people, how do you two feel <laughs> about the Democrats' 2013 filibuster changes? The specific circumstance under which Democrats changed the filibuster was that 
Republicans shifted gears from they started with being really nitpicky about Obama's nominees, but they shifted to the fact that they were just blocking all appointments to a couple boards mm -hmm. because they wanted to keep uh, the National Labor Relations Board uh, and the D.C. Circuit like understaffed so the NLRB could not legally put out rulings. And so the D.C. Circuit uh, would overturn like any executive branch regulations that, that Obama did. So Democrats uncorked the nuclear option because I think they had no real choice other than to do it. But I think that it was right because where we wound up in 2013, right, was there's just a sort of accelerating logic of filibustering where it's each time either party successfully filibusters anything, it shifts the ratchet and that party's interest groups, you know, get that much more like, well, why aren't you blocking this? Why aren't you blocking that? Why aren't you blocking that? And it's it is too much to ask of a political system to have one party affirmatively endorse the other party's ideological priorities, right? Like it was crazy for Republicans to be preventing Barack Obama from staffing the NLRB. But it was also crazy to ask Republicans to endorse Obama's NLRB appointees. Like that didn't make sense. The, the paradigm that we shifted to where like Trump can have whichever education secretary Republicans want him to have and Democrats can complain about it because they disagree with him. That's to me the correct model for governance. And to say that like routine staffing of the federal government requires bipartisan collaboration <laughs> is like it's genuinely asking too much of people. And it's comes from an era in which the public was not paying attention to politics and the parties were not sorted well by ideology so that something like, well, this guy's brother plays golf with my ex staff. You know, it's just like a – it's a logic. It's a very – it's a mid-20th century logic where – if something really weird happens, there might be a filibuster, but normally everyone will get 80 votes and it, it doesn't work anymore. And um, it's easy to sort of say, oh, ha ha, Democrats, you know, have egg on their faces. They wish they hadn't done this. But I think in a lot of ways, they themselves are glad. It would be super annoying for Chuck Schumer to need to navigate the shoals of like, we need to be reasonable and like keep the government operating, but also like half my constituents think Donald Trump is going to institute a fascist dictatorship. And like, do we collaborate? Do we resist? It's like, it's so much easier to be in a position to just look at these people and say, you know what? I genuinely think James Mattis is a reasonable choice for defense secretary, so I will vote for him. And I genuinely think Betsy DeVos is not a good education secretary, so I will vote no. And like, just know that like, if Republicans want to put these people in, they'll go in. I think that's like better. I think I think Democrats in their hearts are happier to just be able to say what they think. I I generally endorse all of. I guess we have full agreement of pro filibuster changes. I don't think I have a ton to add to Matt's answer, but I found it very interesting and generally like agree with him. That long term, these are like the right changes to make and that they do take some pressure off Democrats in ways that are not initially obvious. I'll make the counter argument All right. just for, for argument's sake. I actually also think the filibuster changes were, were appropriate, but I, I want to air out the, the other side here. So I think the, the counter argument is that Matt is right about the context in which those changes were made. And he's also right about the one way ratchet of filibustering and norms breaking. 
But one thing I think Democrats were not thinking about when they made those decisions was that the next president might be Donald Trump. Changing the filibuster makes a lot more sense in a world where you assume the normal boundaries and to some degree norms of, of candidate selection operate. So not having a filibuster on cabinet nominees, but you have President Marco Rubio or you have President John Kasich or you have President Jeb Bush or even President Carly Fiorina, that's one thing. Not having it when you have President Donald Trump and potentially not having it in other spaces too, right? I mean, something we should maybe talk about later is a way that reconciliation is getting – budget reconciliation is getting enlarged to, to allow more of the Obamacare appeal and replacement process to, to run through it. Now, I don't actually buy that argument. Uh, I think that – one, I think that that's actually not the correct way to protect against – norm-breaking politicians like Trump. Uh, I think the Republican Party, for one, will, you know, if, if you're going to have any protection, it's going to have to come from a little bit within. The other thing, though, I would say is that within his cabinet picks, I don't think Trump has been very norm-breaking. I think for the most part, and I can name a couple, I think DeVos is a little bit um, strange, uh, just in the sense of like being very clearly unqualified for, for the office. I think Carson is pretty clearly unqualified for HUD. But even so, even where there are picks who I don't think are great, um, I think mostly what you see is he's picking highly ideological Republicans, usually Republicans with a, a reasonable record uh, in, in public office. And these are just – this is very similar to what you would have gotten. It's not exact, but if you had um, had President Ted Cruz or President Mike Huckabee who would have had in, in some ways a, a not dissimilar ideology, but would have been very different in their political comportment and the feeling of alarm that they created in American politics. Yeah, and the ones you mentioned that are like really kind of not experienced, experience Carson Devo, DeVos, is that DeVos? Yeah. Okay. I don't All know. Right. I keep forgetting. Someone's going to email us and tell us how to pronounce this. They also feel like they're at agencies where I just don't maybe I'm totally wrong, but I don't expect them to be the focus of the Trump administration. So they don't seem like ones that are like as alarm raising. Like, like I look at education, for example, and maybe we'll talk about this more next week. I just don't expect like a lot to happen at education over the next four years. Like so the, you would think it feels like a like a non norm breaking cabinet, and the ones that are especially norm breaking seem to be at agencies that aren't going to get as much attention in the Trump administration. That could be a completely wrong prediction. I mostly agree. But, but to, to me, this really actually strengthens the case for the changes, right? Because if you imagine if Trump had done something really alarming, right? I mean, if he had said, with a Senate conformable pick, right? If he had said, OK, Jared Kushner is going to be Secretary of Defense. <laughs> One good thing about the Democrats not being able to filibuster is it doesn't let Republicans mm -hmm. say to themselves, oh, my God, this is a disaster. But fighting Trump would also be a disaster. So I'm going to just let Democrats block it for me. Because that then turns the question of like, should my unqualified son-in-law be secretary of defense into a partisan issue when like, it isn't. It shouldn't be right. Like, like the, the the country is not going to function unless the Republican Party puts some kinds of constraints on Donald Trump. And creating a situation where Republicans know that they have to do that if they want something to happen 
is appropriate. I mean, I, I think they won't do it and we are going to regret the fact that Donald Trump institutes an authoritarian dictatorship that lasts for millennia. Um, but like it's going to be because Senate Republicans <laughs> don't care to stop him. And like it's entirely on them. It's entirely foreseeable. Right? I highly like, doubt it will last more than 50 or 60 years. Uh, no, I agree with that. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying I think it is important that Orrin Hatch is able to sit alone in an office and say to himself – Chuck Schumer does not have the power to prevent Donald Trump from installing wildly inappropriate federal officials. I have the power. Chuck Schumer does not have the power. I need to decide what the Heavenly Father wants me to do and to do the right thing as an ethical human being. I think that all 52 Republicans have completely failed at that. Um, but that's on them. And like they know it's on them. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. But it's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. So you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com slash weeds. I really do think one of the most interesting confirmation series is going to be Mnuchin at Treasury. No reason to dig into that. That'll come yes, when it comes. it's coming but, later. But it, that is... That is another one where I think you have a clearly unqualified nominee. You have an extremely unpopular nominee, just in the basic facts of his biography, running one of the most important agencies in government and on an issue set Democrats are most keen to fight on. And I'm just going to be fascinated to see how it plays out. Should be fun. But what's playing out right now. Ooh, I see how you did that. That was good. Is the Affordable Care Act. Never De ends. Democrats are up Never all night ends. watching college football and talking about American health care. <laughs> um, yeah, so we are. It really... never fucking ends. It's going to be the name of your That's book on the Affordable on Care Act. Care yeah. um, a life covering the Affordable Care Act by Sarah Cliff. Never fucking ends. That's good. I'm glad I figured that out. Um, well, here Sarah we are. was going to get out of this issue. I was. I was going to move on to a new beat. And Sarah did get out of this issue. Every, every time I try to get out, they pull me back in. Yeah. You, you had a year of respite. I had a year of drawing stick and for rested, box. ready. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so here we are. It's it's still going on. These past two weeks have really surprised me. I, as Weeds listeners know, about a month ago, like, I would have told you, I gave a talk in Colorado where I said, like, Obamacare, it's done. Like, it's getting repealed. Like, I'm getting married in March. It's going to be gone before I get married. Like, I will guarantee you that. Um, I think that was really premature and wrong. Um, and I have started to doubt my certainty on Obamacare repeal watching um, 
how things have developed on the Hill. And there's really two things that have shaped how uh, that have made me less certain repeal will happen. I still think repeal is the most likely outcome. I just don't think it's the only outcome anymore. The first is all these fractures in the Republican coalition around repeal and delay, where you're seeing a lot of Republicans. um, And I think what unites them really is that they come from states that have very high Obamacare enrollment. There's nothing really ideological that seems to unite them who are really opposed to the idea of repeal and delay, which was this uh, Republicans kind of way to repeal Obamacare, um, have the effect kick in about two or three years from now and presumably come up with a replacement plan. Um, I think we're up to 10 senators as of Monday, 10 of the 52 Republican senators who have voiced some level of concern. Like they haven't voted yet, but 10 are already like on the fence. There was a letter that um, five Republican senators put out Monday night where they said um, they wanted to basically push back some of the timeline on the repeal and delay work. Um, So that's one thing happening on the Hill. You have this other dynamic developing in the states where Republican governors are starting to lobby legislators against repeal and delay, saying this would be very bad for my state. This is particularly states that have expanded Medicaid. Um, Ohio Governor John Kasich, Michigan Governor um, Rick Snyder have both really cautioned against um, dismantling the health care law. And those – the Republican Party up until November 8th was very united on Obamacare. Like they knew exactly what to say and they're all very – um, really lockstep in message. I have not up until now seen such fractures in the Republican Party around the Affordable Care Act. And they do speak to the fact that we've talked to you before. It is it is hard to take health insurance away from 20 million people. And I think I had overestimated the ease with which Republicans would do this because I'd seen their ideological consistency so far. Um, I still think they'll figure out to, a way to get it done. But to me, it feels a lot like Ezra will probably remember this, like 2009, where no one, like, maybe this law would pass, maybe it wouldn't. Like, it feels very uncertain. And, like, I honestly, like, do not know, like, what is going to happen in the next few months. I cannot believe (laughs) professional politicians have allowed this to happen to themselves. I, I, I keep sort of walking around this issue and just staring at it. And... Weeds listeners will remember that I have been more skeptical of yeah. repeal and delay than than others have. You I can name me. I'm the than others. others, others have others have been less skeptical than I have been. <laughs> um, I actually, but I mean, in the world, okay. like Republicans were not that skeptical of repeal and delay. They thought this was a good idea. So we had uh, President Obama, Sarah and I did an interview with President Obama, which is on the weeds. Uh, You can scroll backwards in our feed. It's one backwards and and listen to it. And and it's a a really interesting discussion. It's 70 minutes of Obamacare. Um, If you are into this issue, if you are not into this issue, I I urge you to to check it out. The main thing Obama does in that interview, and he does it a lot, is he keeps coming back to what sounds like a pretty easy challenge. He keeps saying, and I'm going to maybe ask a theme to like loop this in. But he keeps saying, listen, I am happy to support a bill that is better than Obamacare. If you've got this terrific replacement, just show it to me. If you can cover more people and it can be cheaper, just show me. Now, what he's doing there is clever, but it shouldn't be. It should not be clever to just say, show me your bill and show that it does a better job than my bill. But the seam that Obama is picking on and the thing that is beginning to split Republicans apart is they have done something that was very politically cynical but long-term problematic. They've spent years attacking Obamacare. 
in the ways and for the reasons in which it is broadly unpopular. So things that are unpopular about Obamacare, a lot of people remain uninsured. A lot of the insurance is very narrow networks. A lot of the insurance is very high deductibles. It is very high premiums. Uh, the insurance often doesn't cover as much as people wish it did. All these things are unpopular. I agree with all of these criticisms. And Republicans have been talking about this all the time. Mitch McConnell did a Fox News op-ed, but I was on Face the Nation um, with him this weekend. I was on after him, and I was watching him, and he said he, – he went off on Obamacare. He said it's left 25 million people uninsured. Its deductibles are high. People are having to buy this bad insurance that they then can't afford to use. Here is the problem. The Republican plans do not fix any of these problems. They make them worse. What Republicans don't like about Obamacare is that it has high taxes, has a lot of regulations. It's a big intrusion of the government into the private market, that it is um, that it is by Barack Obama, that it has an individual mandate. There are all these things they really dislike and that their alternatives really do fix. The problem is what Republicans dislike and what the public dislikes are not the same. And as Republicans start looking at this, they are realizing that the reason they don't have a replacement is that they have never had an answer to this fundamental question. Phil Klein, who is at the Washington Examiner and is a good conservative writer on health care, just wrote this piece. And he said, if Republicans cannot admit that their plans cover fewer people because they are comfortable with the government not covering everyone and also allow higher deductibles because they want that kind of innovation in health insurance, then they are completely screwed on this issue. And the other thing I'll say that I think Republicans have really not appreciated it is not uncommon in American politics to try something difficult like privatizing Social Security or reforming the entire healthcare system and fail. But usually when you do that, you can actually just fail and walk away. It, the thing it just doesn't work anymore. The thing just doesn't happen, right? That's what happened with George W. Bush. It's what happened with every uh, president who tried healthcare before. What repeal and delay does is that if you fail, you've created a rolling catastrophe that is your fault. It means you can never stop. You can't walk away and do a more popular issue because already the marketplaces are destroying. Now you're having to take votes every six months that all of your conservative base are furious about extending the timeline on repeal and delay. The Democrats are getting more and more um, emboldened. Like the public is getting angrier and angrier. Like Vox and the New York Times and the Washington Post and for that matter, Fox News have stories of people who are screwed over by the fact that things are collapsing but Republicans have not done what they promised. It is so obvious the ways in which this backfires that I cannot really believe that politicians as savvy as someone like Mitch McConnell have let themselves get into this place. I was reminded this past week of something from the Social Security uh, issue in winter of 2004, 2005 that I had forgotten a little bit in the, in the intervening decade plus. But it was uh, – this is a little bit dull. But the way Social Security privatization was going to work is that people you know, who were in the workforce, younger workers, were going to take money, was going to be diverted – out of payroll taxes into their private accounts. Um, and this was supposed to be better than traditional Social Security. And, you know, reasonable people can sort of agree about whether a guaranteed pension or this weirdo stock market thing is better or not. Um, but if you understood the policy, there's just this kind of logistical problem, which is that the Social Security taxes that, that like us podcasters pay are covering other people's Social Security benefits. So if we stop paying those taxes and have personal accounts, somebody needs to pay for the, the seniors who are already there. Everybody in like Social Security privatization wonk circles knew this because it's 
pretty obvious. <laughs> and so the various privatization plans that were out there, they all had some solution or another for it. And everybody in like progressive wonk circles like also knew what these solutions were and were ready with like – this one blows a $3 trillion hole in the deficit. <laughs> this one cuts benefits right away. You know, They sort of had these talking points. But a critical reason why Republicans could never agree on a version of privatization is that it turned out that the rank and file members did not know this, right? That when they had spent years endorsing this plan, I don't want to say that they're stupid, but let's just say they were not that curious as to like how was it that this plan magically generated higher returns for everybody. And the reason was it relied on the infusion. There was like a magic asterisk of trillions of dollars, right, that, that was doing the work. And that's why everybody was coming out better off. Um, but Republicans didn't know that. And so then when they would like start sitting down with whoever they sit down with and be like, OK, are we signing on to this plan? Are we signing on to that plan? You would have to start putting something in at the asterisk. And it turns out they didn't want anything in there, right? And I do think that there's some version of that has been happening here, that I think a lot of rank and file Republican members, I think, have convinced themselves that these different – they know there are different replacement plans out there and they think, well, I just haven't like gotten around to studying them or If they would like to them. read Vox's summary, but, <laughs> summarize them. But them. they believed that these replacement plans addressed these political talking points and like they don't. And that was what I had misunderstood. I think Mitch McConnell is always being cynical. And so I'm happy to believe that like he is cynically trying to pull the wool over people's eyes here. But I think a lot of these people uh, were probably confused and like believed that their colleagues were working on some kind of terrific replacement plan. And what they are now sort of learning as they get closer to it is that these replacement plans don't do what it is they've been promising and they don't want to be held to that promise. Um, and I would urge them honestly to like dig deep into these details, right? Because the reason the conservative replacements give people worse coverage is that they all entail a gigantic tax cut for rich people. Um, when you cut taxes for a small minority of rich people, it's hard to help the majority of other people. Um, as it turns out, Republicans have like a 50 bajillion different ideas that amount to cut taxes for rich people. Uh, there's a corporate income tax reform plan <laughs> that does that. They have an individual income tax reform plan that does that. They have what they think is a college savings plan, but that is actually a big tax cut for rich people. Uh, conservative think tanks are just like they're great at coming up with ways to address different policy problems by reducing taxes on, on rich people. There's also the Ivanka Trump child care yes, tax plan. Yes, her right, her child care <laughs> plan justice. So – to the extent that what you figure we're going to get out of this Congress is some number of bills that reduce taxes on rich people, uh, it's like an embarrassment of riches. And there's no actual need to like charge at this particular windmill, right? If the, if, the pr if the con is a bunch of people lose their health insurance and my constituents yell at me, but the pro is that like David Koch is glad that his taxes went down, um, you could just – 
just not do this and just move on to tax reform, which has that same pro. And the con is some boring, like Paul Krugman will write a column about how you're increasing the deficit. And then conservative Twitter will write, oh, don't you love deficits? And then he'll write a follow-up blog post that's like, Keynes said, blah, blah. And like, that's fine. <laughs> Nobody's going to yell at you. Nobody's going to care. Like, just cut taxes if you want to cut taxes. It's it's like, it's it's going to be terrific. <laughs> So I am curious if there is a scenario that can play out that I think I, I would be good for Republicans and Democrats to basically pretend that Obamacare has been repealed without actually repealing it. So one of the interesting things you're seeing develop on the Hill right now is um, the budget reconciliation resolution, which is not a bill. Um, it is basically instructions to the different committees to get the budget to a certain level. Um, and you can read more. I believe Andrew Prokop has an explainer on Vox on how exactly this works. Um, so this budget reconciliation um, resolution, Republicans have been calling it the Obamacare repeal resolution. And the Obamacare repeal resolution will likely pass tomorrow. And it's very confusing messaging, right? Yes. Like it sounds – you would think the thing called the Obamacare repeal resolution would be something that gets rid of Obamacare. Um, I'm here to tell you it is not. It does nothing to get rid of Obamacare. It is the first step towards a very long process that could result in the repeal of Obamacare. But basically what this thing that will likely pass on Wednesday does is it says, OK, committees, we want you to spend a certain amount of money, figure out how to do that, wink, wink, nod, nod, get rid of Obamacare to get there. Send your thoughts back to the budget committee. We'll put it all together and put it to a vote. It's like basically kind of the very informal version of what's going on. Um, but they've been calling it the Obamacare repeal resolution, and that thing will likely pass um, on Wednesday or possibly later this week. I am very curious, and it sounds like to the congressional experts I've talked to, one thing that could happen is we could have that resolution and instructions pass and never actually have the follow-up. And I'm kind of curious how that plays out. Like, can Republic is that enough to say we pass the repeal resolution and Democrats like will kind of be like, eh, sure, and like the program like continues? I'm I've been interested in like how the messaging seems to really um mask what's actually happening and curious like if we end up in a scenario, which seems plausible to me, where they pass the the reconciliation instructions but never actually pass the new bill, like, what is that okay? Like, have they done enough on repeal? So here's why I actually would part from both of the previous comments. Um, Matt's sort of – there are other easier ways to cut taxes on rich people, which definitely there are, and, and, and this scenario, which is the problem Republicans are facing is that – they themselves and their base are not in any way committed to a vision of what the healthcare system looks like. But they are very emotionally committed to the repeal of Obamacare. I mean, that is a an absolutely central organizing principle in contemporary Republican and conservative politics. And I don't think they can just back away from that. I actually think that's the way they're trapped. One point to 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 Matt's uh note about the ways in which many folks don't didn't know how the Social Security privatization plans worked and don't know how the Republican replacement plans work now is that the other really big problem is that having spoken to a lot of senior Republicans about the Affordable Care Act, they don't know how the Affordable Care Act works either. The view you get on that bill if you are reading Republican outlets is so distorted that it puts you in a position where you think everybody would just like there would be flowers and chocolates in the street if you got this thing out of here. Not that 
hey, 20 to 30 million people now have health insurance. All of these health systems all over the country have completely restructured themselves to work on this bill. All of these uh, states, including many with Republican governors, are very reliant now on the Medicaid infusion coming into the bill. That program is working very well. A lot of Republicans have a very distorted view. I don't know if Mitch McConnell really believes that Obamacare is in a total state of collapse, but he really says he does. And I think he actually might. And I think a lot of the other ones very much do. So I think that's a problem. Let me try to be constructive here for a a minute. If I were Tom Price, uh, here's what I would do because they are going to need to figure something out. And I don't think they can do this delay and replace stuff. There's a bill that I need to go back and look at, uh, but it was actually Stuart Butler, who's an old line conservative health wonk who is then sort of exiled from the movement because he came up – he was one of the people who popularized the individual mandate before Republicans decided they hated the individual mandate. But he's a very smart guy on these issues. He's at the Brookings Institution now and we, we had a good conversation about this the other day. And he reminded me that Tom Price and I believe it's Tammy Baldwin used to have a bill – that was a kind of state-based approach to reform, was really handing reform over the states. And he was also talking up the um, Ron Wyden, Scott Brown bill, which was an Obamacare uh, reform reform, an Obamacare reform, I'm sorry, which supercharged an existing section of the law. Right. Yeah. This is getting into the crates. Really? Yeah. It's supercharged an, exec, an existing section law. I believe Section 1332, but that I could is, be that wrong. That is right. That. It's the 1332 waivers. Boom. You still got 1332 it. 1332 waivers, uh, which allowed a state, if it could meet the same levels of coverage and cost as Obamacare, to basically restructure the health system in that state however they wanted to. Now, an interesting thing is that no states actually wanted to do this. Vermont tried with single payer. I know, Sarah. No, no. I was going to say, Hawaii <laughs> just got the first one approved ever. Oh, damn it. OK. So, so I'm, I, I, I'm not I back a... off. I thought you were really going to hit me on this Vermont. I knew about Vermont. Uh, uh, fun fact. Anyway, but not that many have wanted no, to do it. No, no. It's been very unpopular. But, but what Wyden Ryde, Brown did was um, open that process up a lot. It accelerated it because originally the 1332 waivers didn't begin for a couple of years, and it also made them easier to get. What I think Price could do and the Trump administration could do is really punt this. Uh, I think they could go and they could create a kind of 1332 waiver for states that lowered the bar by quite a bit. Maybe you have to hit the same coverage level, but you do not need that insurance to be nearly as good. Maybe instead of it being, I forget the exact actuarial value, 64% or whatever it is, you could go down to 50%. Massachusetts, I think, was 55%. So you could have sparser health insurance. It is still health insurance. And you could you know, repeal a lot of the essential benefits stuff. So you just – you open it up and then you either let states just continue on as things are or you let them do their own thing using federal dollars. But you basically say, hey, we're Republicans. We believe in federalism. We're going to go forward and hand this over. We're going to get rid of Obamacare's terrible regulations and make insurance way too expensive and make it cover way too much. And, you know, I get so frustrated. There, there's this conservative talking point. I heard it this weekend on Face the Nation. It's like where it's like men have to pay the cost of birth control. And it's like, yes, the, what insurance does is it spreads the cost of treatments around. And as a man, I can tell you, we also benefit from people having birth control. It's also a lot cheaper to pay for birth control than babies. It just drives me crazy. But nevertheless, there's a lot of frustration in Republican circles about essential benefits. And, you know, you so see, you could knock a bunch of that stuff down. You could say you have to hit a certain coverage level. Maybe it's not exactly where it is now, but it's 85 percent or it's – I'm sorry, not 85, 90 percent, whatever it is. And just then give it to the states and wash your hands of it. But this thing, I do not think Republicans are going to be able to come up with a plan that they do in Washington 
given the trade-offs you would have to make to do any of this, that will survive a congressional process. I would I, I suggest a, a, a bolder approach, which is I, I really think Donald Trump should take a page. For one thing, Donald Trump should take a page from his own campaign rhetoric, right? Donald Trump's principles for health reform, not the campaign white paper he put out, but back when, when Donald Trump was cool, right? When he was running <laughs> in the primaries and taking on the Republican establishment, he said he would protect Medicaid and Medicare. Um, he said he was going to cover everybody. We're going to take care of everybody and we're going to have the government pay. Um, he said that single-payer system worked well in Canada, that it worked terrifically in Scotland, and that at one point it could have worked for the United States, but that it's not suitable to our issues right now. And what we need is a system in which people can go out and they can negotiate for themselves with a set of different insurers, and we're going to tax the rich if necessary to make sure that the resources are available. That is a great framework for health insurance legislation. It is true that it will sound to many suspiciously similar to the law that is already on the books. <laughs> uh, it is also true that as we know, we have discussed here, Obamacare is uh, – I would not say failing as a whole, but there are significant pockets of failure. Um, I think that if there is somebody who can look through the statute book and his Twitter accounts and his business associates and get somebody to offer some fucking insurance programs in Arizona, it is Donald <laughs> Trump. And he can say that he has fixed this huge, really real problem for the people of Arizona. I think Jeff Flake and John McCain will uh, be glad to take credit for having played a role in that. And like, I think he should he should just do that. Um, I have read that it is likely that premiums will not increase as much again next year. I think Donald Trump should take credit for that. Um, he is president. Things are getting better. Making Obamacare great again. Um, it is remarkable to me how much uh, economic confidence indicators have changed since Trump has has become president with, you know, Democrats going down but Republicans going up because Republicans and Democrats come from different social classes. Uh, small business confidence index is soaring now because Republicans own small businesses. Um, I think like Donald Trump can reframe this and like, quote unquote, fix this problem like with ease. Um, but he should really get in a room with these characters in Congress and like drill down with its Paul Ryan or whomever else. Like what is it they really want to get done here? Like what is up, right? And on the one hand, Paul Ryan, like he wants to scale back all of the federal health care programs, right, in one way or another. He has sort of a specific Medicaid plan and a specific Medicare plan and a specific Obamacare plan. But they were all— and back in the day, a specific Social Security plan. Right. But they all just go in the same direction. He just wants to cut all of these things. We know Donald Trump doesn't agree with that, right? So just— Set that aside. Then the other thing Paul Ryan wants to do is cut taxes. And Donald Trump also wants to cut taxes. So just cut taxes. Like, it, it'll be fine. Um, I, I think Trump has been at his best as a politician when he is willing to be authentic to the fact that he is not, like, imbibed the milk of the modern American conservative movement, which is a little bit of a, like, nut bar ideology. Um, Every other country, as Donald Trump well knows from his lavish golf courses, has the government pay for people's health insurance. It's fine. It's a fine way to run things. And, like, he should just do it. Um, it's what he campaigned on. It's, it's great for Canada. It's terrific for Scotland. Uh, people are going to love it. Okay. Should we talk about a white paper? Let's do yeah. it. Our first NBER paper of the new year. 
Um, so this is a paper I saw yesterday that I thought was very interesting and very depressing. Um, it's the lead author is Abby Alpert from um, the University of Pennsylvania. This is a paper about the opioid epidemic. And basically what she and two other economists look at is um, this change that happened in 2010. Back in 2010, this is kind of like the height of um, the opiate epidemic and abuse of prescription painkillers. Um, the manufacturers of OxyContin, Purdue Pharma, they work with the FDA to come up with this new tamper-proof version of OxyContin that makes it harder to crush it up, sniff it, inject it, which is really where you saw a lot of the abuse with the pills. The pills become much more potent when they're not taken um, orally but are taken in different ways. So they make this tamper-proof OxyContin, which on its face like seems like a great problem, solved. problem solver. This paper suggests quite the opposite. Um, what they find, which really surprised me, is they find that the misuse of OxyContin went down immediately. You saw a lot, a lot less painkiller abuse. At the same time, you saw people in substituting heroin. And so heroin deaths, deaths from OxyContin abuse plummet. Heroin deaths increase at an even greater level, suggesting that there's this kind of substitution effect going on when you make painkillers harder to um, – to tamper with that people just look for for other substitutions. And this is something the FDA is still working on. They want prescription painkillers to be tamper-proof. They want to make it harder to abuse um, things like OxyContin and other sort of narcotics. And, you know, the way they do this is with, like, coatings on the pill or different sort of ways that essentially make it harder to misuse it. This suggest that there are public health implications that have not been thought through in this policy. I honestly would not have put this together if I had not looked at this paper. But it, it was it was surprising to me, this unattended consequence. And the argument that the authors here make is that you can't just look at supply-side drug policy. You can't just look at the supply of OxyContin. There are so many other things happening that a public health approach to stemming um, opiate abuse has to be much bigger and like think through these sort of consequences. I will say the part of this paper, uh, the part of the paper's findings that surprised me is I would not have guessed that that substitution would have been so easy. So my sort of working understanding of the opioid epidemic is that among many, many things going on, one thing that's happened is that this is an epidemic based around drugs you can get through legal means. And so when you can get those drugs to legal means, when a lot of people have a reasonable claim to get those drugs, and also when you can go to a doctor and uh, fake symptoms that would get you these drugs, and also when there are unscrupulous doctors who just want to make money by supplying pills to people who want them, you can see a lot of avenues through which uh, OxyContin and other things like that spread throughout the spread throughout the land. But my guess would have been that for the same reason – that that makes it easy, that it actually makes a heroin substitution difficult because you're dealing with people who they do know how to go to a doctor and get OxyContin, but they probably do not know where to go get heroin. I think archetypally here, an unemployed steel worker who you know, was suffering from lifelong back pain and got hooked on OxyContin, where does he go to get heroin? So I think it's actually easier so, than you're but, expecting. But that's what yeah. I'm saying. Like what this paper shows is I'm wrong. Yeah. Right. Like <laughs> that's not true. And, there was, and um, it's really uh, yeah. There was a great book I read last year, um, Dreamland by this reporter from the LA Times, Sam, I'm going to botch his last name. I think it's Quinones is how his last name is pronounced. And it's an excellent book that reshaped my thinking on the epidemic. One of the things he details is just how easy it became to get cheap heroin over the past five years and that you saw a lot of um, 
trafficking from Mexico. And so when you ask about like that example, how does the unemployed steel worker get heroin? Um, it's because someone who's trafficking heroin is waiting at the pain clinic that's refusing them prescriptions because they've come in so many times. And that you have, I think one thing that's going on that this paper doesn't get it exactly, but you have this rise of cheap heroin that's targeting these people who have been abusing prescription painkillers. So as you see this crackdown, both the, you know, resistant, the tamper-resistant oxycodon, also just more prescriber regulations, like making it harder to get these pills, you also have people targeting that exact group of people who have been been abusing those pills. Well, the, the other thing is there was a, a 2014 uh, JAMA study on, on a sort of related issue where they're talking about the fact that um, heroin is is a lot cheaper than prescription opioids um, because <laughs> hilariously because heroin is not patented. Um, so you're not like paying uh, licenses to people. So there was already this sort of escalator in which the most severe pill abusers would become heroin abusers essentially to save money. And that like pipeline was already reasonably well entrenched by the time the government started cracking down, right? I mean, you can imagine a world in which prescription abuse surges and the feds move in like really, really fast and you're getting a population that has no, like, social connection to heroin trafficking or even, like, towns that nobody is bringing heroin to. Uh, but, like, every place where prescription drug abuse had become well-established, you already had a, like, local substrate of heroin dealing uh, to help people, like, just save money. So then it's something, there's something saying about a barn door. Um, but it, it was like, it came too late, right? This this crackdown on, on putting the pills out. Um, the other thing is that, at least my understanding is that like a lot of these pharmacies were acting in an incredibly unscrupulous mm -hmm. manner, right? That it's not like you had a whole bunch of incredibly upstanding doctors and pharmacists who were getting like scammed on by by wily patients that um, there was that that story in the uh, it was the West Virginia newspaper yeah. about just the like incredible quantity of opiates that were being shipped into like one relatively small West Virginia town and like local authorities had like sent up a little flare was like this seems a little fishy <laughs> and the governor is like well it's legal um, you know which is like I guess the ethics of capitalism that we're operating under, it, it was legal. Um, Late but, capitalism. But it's like, you know, it's like how much how much Oxycontin does one town re really need? It was very much gray market activity that was that was happening in, in the first place. Um, and it's been, you know, challenging uh, to, to shut it off for that exact reason. This paper makes me a little apprehensive about a lot of the policies that are being enacted right now by the FDA, which I think are well intentioned, but essentially take the same same approach as the tamper-proof Oxycontin, where they limit the supply of prescribed opiates in circulation. And you've really seen actually like a sharp decline in prescribing, a sharp decline in providers' willingness to um, give narcotics like Oxycontin. I think one of the challenges is you don't really see a decline in pain. Um, Chronic pain is pretty pervasive, particularly in these places that have really struggled with the opioid um, crisis, a story I've been meaning to write for ages and it just um, has been delayed by a lot of recent news developments, is about the role chronic pain has, pain has played in all of this. And we just don't have 
a great treatment for chronic pain that is safe and non-addictive. It's a really hard fact of medicine. I think that's why Oxycontin and drugs like that were so alluring to doctors because, uh, you know, before that, they didn't really have anything they could say would fix your lower back pain. And then they did find something that would fix your lower back pain. It just turns out it was incredibly deadly and addictive. And so you see a lot of these supply-side regulations, um, which after reading this paper, I, I get a little bit more worried about because this chronic pain is still still going to exist. That part isn't going to change. Like that, The supply of chronic pain does not seem to be reducing. And then if you have less like prescription drugs in, in circulation, um, this paper makes me think like a lot of these other policies, just like the tamper-proof um, changes to some of these drugs, could also have some pretty negative public health effects in the long run. I've just been a little surprised in the whole like dialogue around this issue, how like little reference there is to crack coming and going and other sort of illicit drug booms. I mean, like, I just I feel like almost like part of what you're seeing here with with this like counterproductiveness is the extent to which the prescription drug angle is like a red herring that like addiction cycles are not like a new social phenomenon. Um, I don't know actually that much about them, but I, I read a good book about the the gin craze when it first hit London, um, which, you know, it sounds funny because like gin and tonic, ha ha ha, but it like devastated working class London for 10 years because uh, everybody was hooked on gin and there was like a war on gin. And they, eventually the like harm reduction strategy was to encourage people to drink beer more, which also sounds funny, but, you know, works. Um, and I think a bit of a fantasy to think that there's going to be a like piece of FDA ledger domain that's going to stop communities in which opiate abuse has become a like socially available practice, right? I mean, what, what we know about these kinds of things is that they boom within specific social and demographic strata, right? Whereas it's considered like unacceptable elsewhere to start dabbling in these kinds of things. And you need to provide treatment and help for people who, you know, or want to get like off the escalator. But you have to like convince people that it is dangerous to start messing around with this stuff. And in a in a weird way, I feel like the big story of like Trump era America has been this kind of like authority figures weird indulgence toward the um, eccentricities of rural white working class America. But like you got to not do heroin to not have heroin addiction devastating your community. Like, I don't favor, like, crazy lock up policies or, like, wars on drugs or things like that. But, like, it's addictive pills. You can't I, – I don't know. You know, like, I, I haven't heard that, like, message. And I think actually Donald Trump, who has this family history of alcoholism and who has spoken rarely but I think persuasively about why he doesn't drink at all, and it's because he has seen alcoholism devastate his family. And, like, that's – how you fix these problems. I mean, I think one of the things that's a little different about the opioid crisis than other addiction cycle. I agree there's probably some level of addiction cycle going on here, is, again, the role that chronic pain is playing in a lot of this, and a rise in chronic pain, a rise in people suffering from chronic conditions, and just people getting less healthy in the United States, driving people 
to use opiates, like to use, like to be seeking pain relief, strikes me as why this might be a slightly more long lasting problem than like the gin disaster, like whatever other addiction cycles we've gone through. Well, I guess we're going to find out. (laughs) Next week. (laughs) Next week on The Weeds. Cliffhanger. Treat your chronic pain with podcasts. Uh, this has been another episode of The Weeds. Thank you to my colleagues, Matt Iglesias and Sarah Clift, our producer, Fim Shapiro. The Weeds is a Vox.com and Panoply production. Uh, if you want, you can go listen to my uh, interview this week on The Ezra Klein Show with Elizabeth Colbert, who is the New Yorker's correspondent on climate change, wrote the amazing Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Sixth Extinction. Uh, she gives genuinely the most lucid explanation of the science of climate change that I have ever heard. Um, so I enjoyed that interview. It's very weedsy. I think you all will, too. Talk a bunch about Trump's cabinet and how that is shaping up on, on environmental issues. Uh, but otherwise, we'll see you here next week. <laughs>